Good morning, church. My name is Brandon. If you are uh, here visiting with us today, uh, we I'm one of the pastors here. And as Walker shared, we are teaching through the fruits of the Spirit. And uh, the, the series title is Remade. And so this morning, I'm going to kind of lean into the individual responsibility for peace as we talk about peace, as we've been remade, who we are in Christ informs uh, how we go about cultivating peace. There's a thousand things that I would like to be able to say in a a sermon where I don't know that you guys would be able to uh, sit long enough to hear all those things. So we're going to have to narrow it down just a bit. But uh, one of the things that as I was standing down here uh, and was reminded of uh, as we were singing is basically every time I get a microphone to stand up in front of you, I'm gonna thank you for being people who sing loud and proud to the Lord because every Sunday, every opportunity we have to sing, the, the things that uh, Walker plans for us, the, the truths that we sing, is such an encouragement to my heart to hear you remind me this morning that all of God's promises are yes and amen, that in Christ uh, I can have a, a soul that can rest and say it is well, even when my life circumstances are not going well, uh, which is not the case right now. Praise the Lord, thank you. We're, we're peace like a river attending our way. Uh, but we uh, just, I'm so encouraged by the way that you worship and sing to the Lord. So when we think about peace, I, I wonder what comes to your mind immediately when you think cultivating peace. If you're a parent, I know it looks like you go, 30 minutes after bedtime, if I can stay awake, peace, right? That's, that's what we've got. Uh, well, if your kids stay in bed, then, uh, but what, what is it that comes to mind? Is it tranquility when you think of peace? Is it calm? Is it quiet? Sunrises over the ocean, mountain vistas. Uh, if you quickly Google cultivating peace or how to have peace, you'll get a list of somewhere between one and 15 things that you need to do to feel like you are at peace. Should you meditate? If yes, how long? Where should you be when you do that? How many times do you have to do it before you'll have peace? Maybe you should clean your room. Maybe you should be nice to yourself. Maybe you should go outside. But there's there's, uh, kind of the promise that if you do the right things in the right order, in the right places, then you'll have peace. What if that's all that we needed, right? You can check out now if that's the case. Like, I've given you everything that you need. You don't have to listen to me anymore. Uh, but if, if I cultivate the right habits, I'll have peace. If I read Marie Kondo's life-changing magic of tidying up and I only keep the things around me that spark joy, peace, right? I'll, I'll be happy. Or if I read Becoming Minimalist and Joshua Becker's stuff and say, all right, if I just get rid of all the things that clutter up my life, then I'll have peace. Maybe, but maybe, maybe really it's not the things around me, it's I need to go to the right place to have peace. So imagine the most peaceful place that you've ever been. For some of you, that would be sitting on a beach somewhere, looking at the ocean. That's the opposite of my peaceful place. I don't particularly like being sandblasted in an oven. Um, <laughs> but for me, thinking back in recent memory, Uh, Upper Cathedral Lake in Yosemite, where uh, there are majestic peaks kind of surrounding. There's a crystal clear sea straight to the bottom lake that's just melt, uh, snow melt runoff. 
into the lake. There's a grassy beach on the other side of the lake where mule deer are kind of gradually making their way across, grazing, getting sips of water, red-winged blackbirds singing. And it is so peaceful that it's almost overwhelming. You know, and I said, standing there, you know, I got to spend about an hour at that spot, <clears throat> that I could build a cabin up here and just live here for the rest of my life. And it would be quiet, and it would be peaceful, it would be tranquil, and it would be selfish. What's at the root of a search for all these kinds of peace? Really, it's me, right? I want what I want so that I can have that calm, that peacefulness that I want, right? So there's a big difference between peace that's about me and peace that's a fruit of the Spirit. So peace that's about me is I can think I have all of my needs met. I don't have to worry about the future because I feel safe and secure in my, uh, my work, my savings, my whatever. It's about, I don't have to deal with any interpersonal drama because I just cut off all of the toxic people in my life and I just avoid them, right? I push all of those relationships away when there are problems so I can have peace. So this is the best bad news you'll hear about peace today. It's not about feeling just settled and calm at all times. It's not about a life that plays out easily, just the way that we expected it to go, and it's not about being comfortable or keeping things quiet. It's not not rocking the boat. So when Paul talks about peace in Galatians, he's talking about the active pursuit of whole and healthy relationships. So when my relationship to God is whole and healthy, I can have peace. When I'm actively pursuing whole and healthy relationships with others, we can make peace. So the good news is that the, the seeds that we plant as we think about the things we'll do today with peace, it, they sprout out into real deep and satisfying connections to other people. It's one of the ways that we get to live out the image of God who is three persons in one who live perfectly unified, who live in perfect peace and always have. So thinking about this again, if, if peace is primarily about me, then the most important thing for me and everyone else is to avoid disturbing the peace. I don't need the Holy Spirit to feel content when I have everything I want or when things are going the way that I want them to go. I don't need the Holy Spirit to strategically live my life to maximize good results for me. I don't need the Holy Spirit to make peace with others by silencing, overpowering, or outmaneuvering them so that I can get what I want, okay? No spirit work in those. I do need the spirit to make peace if we're gonna become members of one body as people who are, are different than I am, people who show up from different places, who are carrying different baggage. We just talked about on Wednesday night, we're gonna talk about church hurt, who are struggling with maybe something that's happened in their background. People who come from different cultures, whether that's from when or where they were raised, okay? As people age, I'm starting to get, I'm tipping over that edge where you're like kids these days, right? But everybody was saying that about me when I was 15, and people have been saying that about people since there have been people to think about the next generation, right? So to, to put all of those things together, the great news about peace is that we're becoming who God intended us to be. We've been remade to be people who make peace across all of those boundaries. The Bible describes us as Christians, 
If we're in Christ, we're the building blocks of his temple. We're members of a family. We're connected, even more than members of a family, we're connected as one body. All the different body parts where Christ is the head of that body. So in Christ, there's no longer any real difference between us that can be more fundamental than what unifies us. And we do need the spirit for that kind of unity because it's going to require humility and personal change. Sanctification, right? It's the $10 word for that. So to get to that piece, I've got to live a life that's marked by the spirit. I need a wisdom from above that leads me to uh, a gentle, others first attitude that's willing to do the hard work of restoring relationships that Rodney taught us about when he talked about love as a fruit of the Spirit. So if you would look with me in uh, James 3, we're gonna use, uh, we're gonna learn from verses 13 through 18 this morning. <clears throat> I'll read that all right now. So, who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. So we know from that last verse, the end of the story today is that uh, we're to be the people who are cultivating peace in a spirit of peace. So how, how do we get there? We'll work our way through kind of verse by verse with this. First, verse 13 says, who among you is wise and understanding? So we've, we've got to have wisdom. We've got to have understanding. So what does it mean to be wise and understanding? Hopefully, as you, uh, as you kind of become a student of the scriptures, as you read through the Bible, you, the first thing you think when you hear wise or wisdom is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That uh, we want to have a fundamentally God-oriented life. So the fear of the Lord says, I'm going to pass everything through the filter of, will God approve? Is this what he wants? It's really important to me to live a life that's Godward and not self-centered. It's really easy for me to live a life that's self-centered and not Godward. So the Proverbs tell us that when we fear the Lord, we start to think like him. We start to think with the mind of God. So when we think with the mind of God, it doesn't only mean that we can discern the difference between good and evil. A lot of times that's kind of easy to say, okay, it would be wrong for me to behave this way, to respond in anger, to yell at my kids, to whatever. I can say, okay, those are things that I don't want but it actually even helps us to distinguish between what's permissible and what's beneficial. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that everything's permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. So the wise and understanding person doesn't look out for herself. She's eager to do what's necessary for the good of others, and uh, as a sneak preview, that's a really great way to aim for peace, right? When I can get myself out of the way and I can put others' needs ahead of my own, it's a great way to come together. So James goes on to say that this wise person's life should be flavored 
by good conduct, and he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. So a, a wise person, a godly person's life will be marked by good works and gentleness. These are anti-wisdom to the flesh. Okay, a person who is, who is working in the flesh, who is trying to get on in the world in the flesh, is sure that their wisdom is justified by the ends. So if I can maneuver to the outcome I want, I must be wise. For the believer, the outcome is already sure. So we're free in God through Christ to be able to pursue peace with one another because I don't need to worry about justice. I don't need to worry about vindicating myself. I don't need to worry about vengeance when I'm wronged because the end in Christ is already assured. I don't have to maneuver to something uh, to, to use my wisdom to get my way in any of these issues. And the problem is that that, that kind of attitude is our natural state of affairs. Before God, gave a, before God saved us and gave us new hearts that are peace-loving, that love him, that love his people, that love his word, we looked like verse 14. James says, but if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. So this morning, I hope that you don't have a bunch of bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart. But we could imagine what it might look like if you did. And we're gonna, we're gonna look at the first story of bitter envy and selfish ambition just to kind of flesh, <clears throat> flesh this out a little bit to say this is the natural state. Genesis 4, we go all the way back to the beginning, or right after the beginning. And uh, Adam and Eve have some kids, right? The first sons that they have. And, and in verse uh, 2, talk about Cain and Abel and what they do. Abel uh, has flocks. He keys a shepherd. Cain uh, is a farmer. He works the ground. And verse 3 says, in the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. Okay, that's good. We would want that. Abel did the same thing. Some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. But there was a difference. And I don't think it's so important right now that we dig into why there was a difference, but there was a difference, and Cain's response is really telling of our natural heart. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. So we see that God showed favor to Abel, who appears to have done what's right, did not show favor to Cain, there must have been some issue here without speculating on that too much. The question that, that this raises for me is, what happens in my heart when uh, I'm overlooked? Or when I'm even, I receive the negative feedback. My coworker gets the praise, they did something, I feel like I did something equivalent, they get called out as a good example. What goes on in my heart? When uh, I serve my church, I serve my friends, I serve wherever it is that I'm doing things, and uh, somebody else gets recognized and my service goes unnoticed, right? I don't, I don't get anybody's regard for what I've done. What happens in my heart? You can think back, or maybe you're still experiencing this, or you get to watch it if you're a parent. Maybe, maybe some sibling rivalry, right? Cain and Abel stuff going on where you, you see hmm, there's one kid who seems to thrive in this, and then uh, my parents always, you know, loved my sister more, or whatever the case, right? What happens in 
my heart. Well, Cain, my natural heart, right, was furious and he looked despondent. And then the Lord said to Cain, verse 6, why are you furious? Why do you look despondent? If you do what's right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So first, notice that God gives grace to both Cain and Abel, right? He gave the regard to Abel, blessed the sacrifice, but he also, uh, with Cain, the less obvious grace is that God calls Cain to righteousness and reconciliation rather than just smashing him out of hand, right? Cain responded badly to God's God's action, but God responds graciously by warning him of the danger that he's in if he doesn't make peace. We know uh, from the New Testament, thinking about the same language about sin, sin's like a roaring lion. It's looking to destroy you. It's waiting to destroy you. So we gotta watch out. From Cain's heart to my heart, we're all just sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, okay? That inherited sin nature is with us from the very beginning. We got Cain's uh, nature to say, this is unjust and I've gotta do something about it. So what seems right in a moment of of self-righteous fury, indignation, can look very different when we're sober-minded and reflecting on a sinful response. And so Cain doesn't make peace, right? Or he makes peace in his own way. He makes quiet. Verse eight, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And this first murder set off a chain reaction of sin that led to the flood, where God wiped people off the earth because of the way that things were going there. And it's one of the best examples of bitter envy and selfishness in the whole Bible. Cain wanted what Abel had. He wanted approval from God. He wanted to feel good about himself. Instead, his offering was rejected. And he was so angry with God that he said, something's gotta be done about this injustice. James tells us what's happening here, that when we have earthly wisdom, wisdom that's aimed at our good, our way, it leads to big problems. Cain takes it to the max. He's so bitter that it seems better to him to kill Abel, to get back at him for pleasing God, and to get back at God for making his life miserable. So Cain gets to kill two birds with one stone. And you can watch out because our hearts are primed to react just like Cain's, okay? Not in Christ, not sanctified in peace. We, we like to think that we would be able in those situations, the good guy who gives the good gift, but often that's not the case. So when we think we can take matters into our own hands, that's the wrong kind of wisdom. So let's look back at James 3 and see what James describes that as. He says, verse 15 and 16, such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It's kind of ascending order of uh, bad things here. And in verse 16, for where there's envy and selfish ambition, there's disorder and every evil practice. So as we kind of unpack this and think about peace, we're gonna answer a few questions. First, why do we sabotage peace? How do we sabotage peace? Then we're gonna turn it over and say, how can we move towards peace 
And why should we? Why must we move towards peace? Okay? So first, how do we sabotage peace? Paul Tripp talks about the insanity of sin. Okay? It's, it's fully, certifiably crazy that believers would choose disorder and sin over peace with God and others. Okay? So why do we do it? Well, according to James, we have some issues with arrogance here that we would boast in, in our uh, disorder. We would boast in our wisdom. Because when I'm faced with a conflict like Cain, my way through it seems like a pretty good idea to me. So I wanna do the things that, that it makes sense to me to deal with this, right? Especially if I have a conflict that I know that I can win, okay? I, wanna, I want to win. James says also that we, we struggle with denial here. It's natural for us to deny the truth about what's going on in our hearts. It's natural for us to, to choose a truth that makes us feel better about our sin and say, hey, it's just the way that I'm wired. It's just, if you only knew what this other person had done to me, then it would make sense to you why I'm responding in this way. Adam and Eve did it in the garden, and we definitely inherited that superpower from them. It can't be me, it's gotta be you. Okay? And it's very natural to us. We just talked about Cain and Abel, who, uh, who were living, living out, or Cain, who was living out his natural inclinations. And then in Galatians 5, as we talk about the, uh, the fruits of the flesh, or the works of the flesh, they're very natural to us, they're very obvious to us. They're things that we just kind of lean into by virtue of, of being uh, human in the flesh. So how do, we, how do we sabotage peace, right? Why do we do it? It's crazy but it makes sense in the moment. How do we sabotage peace? So we've got two big obvious answers from the text. If your heart's full of bitter uh, envy and it's full of selfish ambition, you will not know peace. There's, there's no way to know peace. You can make things quiet, you can make things steady, you can not rock the boat, but that's not the same thing as having peace, right? So it would be far more natural if my heart is full of those things, to kill the person or the group that I'm uh, struggling with, figuratively or literally, then it would be to, uh, to find some kind of peace. So what about the less obvious examples from the text? Because I think there's a bunch of good, less obvious, how we disrupt peace. So the first thing that we know we'll do is that we'll rely on earthly wisdom. I'm gonna have a good idea. Paul asks the Galatians, uh, back in, in chapter three, he says, are you gonna start by the spirit and then somehow work out your salvation by your flesh? So are you gonna come to faith in God by spirit, by faith, and then go, hey, I'm gonna behave in such a way that God's gonna like me. I'm gonna take my earthly wisdom and apply it to my spiritual life. Paul doesn't seem too pleased with the Galatians when they're doing that. So. This is a temptation for all of us. So we need to identify what does earthly wisdom look like, okay? Paul, or excuse me, James says here, it's unspiritual and demonic, but my good ideas don't usually occur to me as demonic thoughts. I think, hey, I'm gonna get what I want out of this, that's not bad, right? So let's, let's look at verses 17 and 18, and then we're gonna do something kind of unusual and uh, work our way through them kind of in the bizarro world. So 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. 
And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Now, what's often helpful whenever I'm trying to kind of get my mind around an idea is to say, what does it look like if we frame out the opposite? Okay, so I rewrote this verse, not part of canon, right? Just as a thought exercise. I'm not, I'm not breaking the law here. Uh, to say, what would it look like to have anti-wisdom? Right? The Bible calls that foolishness, but we'll call it anti-wisdom this morning. So if you could put that slide up, we'll, uh, we'll read this out. Okay? This, is, this is the earthly, unspiritual, demonic anti-wisdom. Now, earthly wisdom is first unrepentant, then drama-loving, harsh, stiff-necked, worried about justice, but only in one direction. It produces bad fruit, it's wishy-washy, and hides behind false faces to preserve the status quo or to manipulate others. And the fruit of the flesh is sown in strife by those who cultivate bitterness and selfishness. Okay? When you read that on the face, you go, that's crazy. Right? That's not a life that I want to live. That's not a heart that I want residing inside of me. I can imagine that all my relationships would be soured if that's kind of how I live and how I think about the world. So let's, let's kind of take that list apart a little bit thought by thought. Earthly wisdom is first unrepentant. Ongoing unrepentant sin stands directly opposed to the active pursuit of peace. Because if I have a hard heart that's happier in my sin than, than what they would want to humble itself and repent and to turn, right? Repent means to turn around. I'm gonna make a 180 and turn from my sin toward God. It's all about me, okay? Ongoing unrepentant sin says that I'm unwilling to change because I want what I want and I'm unapologetic about it. I've doubled down on putting me first. If I love drama, and uh, if you keep your eyes on anything kind of cultural media, you know that there's people who, who literally live for other people's problems. They love drama. Hopefully I'm not talking to you. Then it will be tough for me to overlook small misunderstandings, to play up the good in other people, and to support them as they're sanctified through the bad things that are going on in their life, because I can say, I'm the same, and I would rather avoid the drama, let's make peace. If I'm harsh, and my interactions with other people and their sin starts at an eight out of a 10, instead of a one or a two, where I could approach them gently, nobody wants to listen to that. Right? The Proverbs uh, talk about that, that a, uh, a gentle word turns away anger. Right? But if we speak venomously to one another, if we're harsh, if we're overbearing, then, uh, then we can't make peace. I can't make peace by force, but again, I can make quiet. If I'm stiff-necked, then nothing that leads to a breakdown of peace can be my fault. It's always gotta be you. It's always the other person. And because it's you, I'm fully justified in feeling how I feel and saying what I say, and if it leads me to being uh, way overcommitted to the justice that kind of makes sure that I am treated fairly, all the better, right? I have a reason to hold on to all that. And if I'm living that way, you, you know what? You're gonna see bad fruit. 
You're going to see bad fruit. Paul, uh, right before he shares the fruits of the Spirit, talks about the works of the flesh. He lays out this big list. He says they're obvious. But in this context, my bad fruit will look like hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, and envy, because they're all rooted in a me-first worldview. It it will make me wishy-washy. I'll be a fair-weather friend. I'll be pushed around by circumstance because I'm really looking out for me. And what's good for me is going to change depending on the situation. And if I'm looking at media, I'm looking at social media, I'm aware of what's going on in the world and the spins that are being placed on those things, James says maturity looks like being rooted in in the Lord and not pushed around by human cunning and deceit. But I'm going to get hit with 50 tsunamis a day, and if I'm not rooted in the truth, I'm going to get pushed all over the place on those things. And you know what I'll do? I'll look for ways to fight with the people that I think I love because they think differently than me about things that are just going on in the world. And maybe the worst of all of that is that I'll do it with false pretenses. I'll attend my church, I'll go to small group, I'll bless our Lord and Father with my mouth, with James says the, the first part of chapter three, and then I'll turn around and curse people who are made in his image with the same mouth that just blessed the Lord, right? Which James is pretty disgusted with if you read the first half of chapter three uh, this afternoon. So those, those false pretenses make it look like, hey, I'm happy, I'm good, everything's fine, but I can hold on to hatreds and strife and bitterness inwardly while putting on a good face, right? What's the Bible call that? Hypocrisy, okay? So does this describe how you are getting on in the world? Like Cain, through this this word today, God's calling you to repentance, to turn from a life of anti-wisdom, a life that's focused on self, and turn it towards the Lord in Christ. That means that you can, uh, you know, sin in this case, just like uh, God warned Cain, sin is crouching at your door, and it's ready to devour you, it's ready to devour your relationships, It's ready to devour your ability to love and to serve. It's sapping your strength for ministry. So let's flip the passage over back to right side up. So the good news about a thing like this, a lot of times you might read a list of these things and go, I could never do that. I can't live that out. Matt brought that up last week talking about joy, that some of us are wired in a way that we're just naturally a little happier and carry ourselves in that way. And some of us are wired in a way that we're a little more solemn. And we go, Matt, I could never be that joyful. Cynicism is bad theology. Okay, so the spirit can do this work in us that we can't do in ourselves. And good news, when God says, I want you to behave or to be a certain way, those are different, acting and being, it's his will for our lives. And when God makes it expressly clear, explicitly clear, this is what I want for your life, when you pray and ask him for that, He's faithful, and he actually wants to give you that, right? The word tells us that he delights to give his children the kingdom. So we can lean into cultivating peace in these things with the hope, the sure hope, that the Lord will support it. So uh, how do we cultivate peace? James Clear wrote a book called Atomic Habits, 
and he talks a lot about how people try to uh, accomplish things or become better people or whatever the case may be. Before you get worried that I'm about to bring some earthly wisdom to this, it's biblical wisdom in disguise, okay? So what he says is that what people typically try to do when they're making a habit is they're gonna focus on an outcome that they want, then they're gonna try to come up with a process that will do it, and then once they've done those things, they'll have an identity. I'm now the kind of person who goes to the gym, eats their vegetables, reads, fill in the blank with the habits that you might want to develop. What he says is that the better way to do this is to flip that, to be the kind of person who does what they want to do so that the process makes sense and the outcome is assured. So biblically here, if I submit to what God has done in me in Christ, I am a peacemaking person. I am a person who loves peace, who can be gentle, right? That's who God has made me to be. And so because I am a person who's been remade like this, then I can do the things that lead to the outcome of making peace, okay? So again, I've gotta be in Christ for this to work. You're not gonna muscle it, or you might for a minute, but you're gonna get frustrated, it's not gonna work. And when you don't get the peace you expected, it's all gonna be for nothing. As opposed to, in Christ, the process is working its way out, and you may not get to see the outcomes that you want until the Lord returns. But you have hope, because the Lord will return and put all things right. So you can live the process even without obvious uh, success in these things, okay? You can be faithful. So verse 17 and 18 again. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. So when we live lives of personal purity, we can sow peace. We can plant the seeds of peace. It's the fruit of righteousness. And when I'm living my life pursuing holiness, there's less and less sin to divide and stand between me and others, okay, the big things. I don't have to hide who I'm becoming in Christ because by his word and his work in me, he's making me more and more presentable, okay? Purity leads me to become more peace-loving. I want to see whole and healthy relationships develop between me and others, and I wanna see healthy relationships in the people around me as they, uh, as they interact with one another. I'm not content with keeping things quiet, okay? Somebody who's peace-loving may have to wade into or will have to wade into the treacherous waters of relationships to pursue peace. There's gonna be conflict as long as there's sin in the world, as long as we have to deal with those things. But there, there may be a bunch of issues that need to be brought to light. There may be things that need to be apologized for. There may be things that need to be forgiven. And because I love peace so much, the pain of humbling myself in those situations is far outstripped by the benefit of seeing those relationships whole and healthy. By the way, right, as a, an extra incentive here, uh, Jesus said that peacemakers will be blessed, right? Jesus commands us to make peace, uh, and so we want to be obedient to that, and he promises us good. If I love peace, if I'm pursuing purity, Wisdom from above is gonna allow me to handle my relationships gently. Following Christ's example, 
he said of his, himself in his heart that he was gentle and lowly. He was meek. He was mild. Um, the language there is kind of like when a breeze blows by and it just kind of gently caresses, right? That, that kind of light touch that I can use in my relationship that's comforting, that's kind. So I can follow his example and not needing to overcome opposition by force, rather I can extend grace. I don't need to shout people down. A gentle answer can turn away wrath. And as that comes, I'll be compliant. And that word is, is, uh, you could also think open to reason, able to be persuaded. I'm not committed to my side. I don't have to fight you to the death to be right. When I'm sinned against, when I'm overlooked, when I'm pressed aside, I can extend the same mercy to those who've offended me as God in Christ showed me. In the spirit, I can desire restoration in relationships more than vindication. I can pay the price when others sin against me because Jesus did it first on my behalf. I can be unwavering. I can be steady and reliable in those places. My yes will be yes, as James talks about later in the book. My no will be no. When you sin against me, I won't cut you off as a toxic person in my life, but I can pursue restoration and be quick to forgive. And I can be authentic. I can be vulnerable. I can avoid pretenses. I don't have to put up a mask and pretend like everything's okay. I can let you into what's going on, even if it's you that caused the offense. I can say, hey, this is what's going on. This is how I want our relationship to be restored. And so who I am when things are going smoothly is who will be there when things do not. So we know that those, and sorry, will be known as those who sow peace peacefully as we show the fruit of righteousness in our lives. So why do we have to do this? Why do we have to do this? Besides saying it's really great and a life full of peaceful relationships and whole and active, uh, whole and healthy ones uh, is a full life, we gotta do it because God did it first. We've gotta do it because God did it first. Jesus was, was the, uh, the perfect example of that wisdom from above, right? He was perfectly pure, sinless. He came to make peace by his blood on the cross. He was gentle and lowly. He complied with his Father's plan, even though it cost him infinitely more than it'll ever cost us to do that. He's merciful to all who repent, He's even on the cross, bearing, bearing the worst torture that the Romans could think of to shame publicly and to, to humiliate and said, forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. He was merciful to the end. He was the same yesterday, today, forever. He's always exactly who he says he is, right? He's the perfect exemplar of this uh, wisdom from above. We know that he didn't come to make calm he didn't come to make quiet. He approached the people who needed to repent and he, he made it clear to them in the same way that God warned Cain. This sin is gonna kill you now and forever. Come to peace. He brought a kingdom, right? The first words in Mark that Jesus says, repent and believe because the kingdom is at hand, right? I'm here to usher in this thing. He tells people as he's teaching, I didn't come to make things easy. I didn't come to make things quiet. This, is, this message of repentance is gonna divide people. But for those who come and repent, he makes peace. And so in Colossians 1, 
<clears throat> as we're, uh, I mean, that's great homework too, just read Colossians 1. But at the end of this passage where we're, we're building up Jesus and what he's doing, Colossians 1, 19 and 20, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. We talked a lot about this in Philippians 2, how he let go of that to come down and condescend, to be a peacemaker. Verse 20, through him to reconcile everything to himself. What does it mean to reconcile? It's making peace. It's bringing these relationships together. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, shed on the cross. Now the, the good news about this, so first, Jesus is the first big peacemaker here, the ultimate peacemaker, dealing with our sin before today, tomorrow, all those who have gone before in the Lord. And he's willing to go to the point of shedding blood to get there. And he did all of that because we said right now, peace is not the natural state of things, but will, it will be the natural state of things when the Lord returns. All will be right between God and man for those who are in the family of Christ, and all will be right between all those in the family of Christ when he returns, right? So that hope can allow us to lean into the discomfort of making peace now because we know that it will be ultimately, completely, finally done well then. So this morning as we uh, remember that together, we're gonna have a time of uh, communion. So if the, the band would like to come up, we're gonna do things a little bit differently today. Uh, I'm gonna give you a little bit from Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians on communion to reflect on, and then uh, as the elements are passed, the band is gonna play a new song. So we want you to uh, use that time to reflect. But let's, let's think for a second. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about the Lord's Supper, and he says, uh, starting in verse 17, now in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you came together not for the better, but for the worse. It's not the way that you wanna start the Lord's Supper, right? For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. And then later in verse 27, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. And so let a person examine himself, and in this way let him eat the, blood, or eat the bread and drink from the cup. So as we're thinking this morning about peace, about making peace, about relationships, in the same way that Rodney said, uh, speaking of Jesus, talking about giving an offering and realizing, hey, I've got something that's dividing me from somebody else, rather than putting my money in the box, rather than clicking send online, I need to make peace and then give my offering from a place of purity. This morning, as you're kind of reflecting and preparing to take the Lord's Supper, which is communion, right? We're communing with the Lord and one another in doing this together. It's supposed to be a show of our unity in Christ and of his sacrifice for us. Uh, it is a thing only for believers. So if you're not a Christian, if you're living life through that kind of anti-wisdom, then I want to call you. There'll be people around the room, but in the back that can speak with you and share with you the truth of the gospel and how you can come into the family of Christ and be a peacemaking person to have peace with the Lord. But for those of us, as we're, uh, as we're listening to the song, and as we're thinking on our own life, ask the Lord to show you, or is there anywhere that there's division? Is there anywhere that I need to make peace? And I want to encourage you to lean into that before you take the supper together, okay?
So let's, let's take a moment to uh, reflect.